I'd like to first read for you John chapter 17 in its entirety. And uh, I want to expound some of what's going on from the first 10 verses and then really concentrate on, on verse 11 uh, and see what that means for us as believers and what we come to know and understand about salvation just from what Jesus says, what we come to understand about eternity. So have that perspective as I read this for you. It says, Jesus spoke these things and lifting up his eyes to heaven, he said, Father, the hour has come, glorify your son, that the son may glorify you even as you gave him authority over all flesh, that to all whom you have given him, he may give eternal life. This is eternal life that they may know you, the only true God in Jesus Christ whom you have sent. I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work which you have given me to do. Now, Father, glorify me together with yourself, with the glory which I had with you before the world was. I've manifested your name to the men who you gave me out of the world, and they were yours, and you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. Now they have come to know that everything you have given me is from you. For the words which you gave me I have given to them, and they received them and truly understood that I came forth from you, and they believed that you sent me. I ask on their behalf, I do not ask on behalf of the world, but of those whom you have given me, for they are yours, and all things that are mine are yours, and yours are mine, and I have been glorified in them. I'm no longer in the world, and yet they themselves are in the world, and I come to you. Holy Father, keep them in your name, the name which you have given me, that they may be one even as we are. While I was with them, I was keeping them in your name, which you have given, given me, and I guarded them, that not one of them perish but the son of perdition, so that the scriptures would be fulfilled." But now I come to you, and these things I speak in the world, so that they may have my joy made full in themselves. I've given them your word, and the world has hated them, because they are not of the world, even as I am not of the world. I do not ask you to take them out of the world, but to keep them from the evil one. They are not of this world, even as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, I also have sent them into the world. For their sakes I sanctify myself, that they themselves also may be sanctified in truth. I do not ask on behalf of these alone, but for those also who believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, even as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you sent me. The glory which you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one just as we are one. I and them, and you and me, and they may be perfected in unity, so that the world may know that you sent me and love them, even as you have loved me. Father, I desire that they also, whom you have given me, be with me where I am, so that they may see my glory which you have given me. For you loved me before the foundation of the world. O righteous Father, although the world has not known you, Yet I have known you, and these, things, these have known that you have sent me. And I have made your name known to them, and will make it known, so that the love with which you love me may be in them, and I in them. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Fathers, we come before you again this morning. 
Lord, we ask that you would cleanse us of our iniquities and our unrighteousness. Lord, that you would continue to forgive us and by the blood of your Son, Jesus Christ, may we be presented pure, spotless, Lord, and without blame. Would you place a burden upon our lives, Lord, to seek your Son in the Scriptures? To seek you, Lord, to desire the things that are not of this world, the things that are a mystery to those who are unbelievers. Lord, we just ask that you would burden us with sin to understand how disgusting it is before your sight. Lord, let us not enjoy our sin, but cause it to be far from us that we may constantly be in your word that we may be sanctified by your word that we may be cleaned by the truth of who your son is and what he's done on the cross and lord as we look upon this particular portion of text this morning i pray that as you've made it clear to my mind lord that you would present it to your people to this church to this congregation that our jesus christ defines everything that we believe in order that it not be backwards. Not that we would have a belief and then create for ourselves a false Christ. I pray that we not be led astray by things such as that, Lord. In His name we pray. Amen. So we look at chapter 17 in John and it's great prayer of Christ not the only prayer of course he's previously taught the disciples to pray but we see here Christ is praying and so I I say that so that we look at prayer from the proper perspective what is prayer obviously it was a necessity for Christ to pray to the father it should also be for us prayer for us is our our communion with God it's our time of, of supplication it's a time to bring petitions In times past, there would be, for the disciples, a different perspective on prayer. See, they had prayed, most certainly, but during the time of Jesus' ministry, he was available physically, in bodily form. If they had a need, we see that even reading the prayer that Jesus himself prayed, that he spoke to the Father saying, Yes, as I was here, I kept them, I provided for them, I did these things. But they're transitioning to a time when Christ will soon leave. He'll he'll leave behind the Comforter. He'll send the Comforter. But He won't be there in bodily form. And so for them, it will be a a, a deep change that must take place. And we, we must realize that, that they had Christ bodily. They had Him in their presence. And so they had essentially fallen off the prayer wagon, so to speak. We see that, that they would fall asleep during times of prayer. That it just wasn't important, but Christ continues to pray fervently. He knows how important it is. And so we recognize this prayer is a communion that Christ has with God the Father. And his prayer in the first verse begins with an acknowledgement of the will of God. It says, he spoke these things and lifting up his eyes to heaven, he said, Father, the hour has come. And he calls him Father. He's acknowledged God. And he says, his hour has come. The hour that his ministry was pushing forward towards. The things that he was preaching. There was a a culmination about to begin. 
as Christ would go and be hung upon the cross and then dead, buried, resurrected, and then ascended. And so this hour had come, an hour which he was willing to lay down his life. He says he does so because the Father has willed him to do so. This is no ordinary hour when we take a, a proper view of it. It's not an hour like any other that we've ever seen or that we ever will see. An ordinary hour is defined by an existence of a person or an event that as it happens, it's soon over. But we have a very unique hour in Jesus Christ. This is an, uh, For some people, we have an hour of fame or an hour of glory. We've heard those term, terminologies. We have sayings like, this is your time at the top or your moment in the spotlight. These are typical hours. But the one that Jesus is speaking about is not your typical hour. It's an hour that shall never be forgotten. It's an hour that shall never lose its magnificence because it's the hour of the Lord Jesus Christ. It's an hour that leads to an eternity. So it's a a timely event that leads to a timeless event as we recognize it. It's an event that can't be confined to a single page because it is the culmination of the gospel message. The message that all the disciples and the apostles would preach until now. It's the message that we preach moving forward until the time that Christ comes again. The saints will worship. Every tongue will confess. The truths of this hour are that Jesus so tenderly embraced death. And he continues to embrace those who belong to him. Nevertheless, he acknowledges the Father in these first verses as supreme, just as we should. He then says, glorify your Son. Speaking of himself, the Son of God. He's making a claim to his deity that he is the Son of God. He's speaking to the Father here. He's telling us about a relationship that he's had with the Father, that he continues to have, that we should likewise have in prayer It's our only form of communication. There's no other. It's the way that we communicate with God. It's the way that He communicates to us through His Word that He would transform us. Prayer is very important. So we see, He isn't forsaking the time of prayer as we do. He isn't bypassing those things. There's nothing for Christ more important than this time alone to pray for himself first, and then as we see the, the text progresses, then he prays for those who belong to him. And he says, it's not just the entire world. He says, it's not those. It's for those who God has given him. He then says, glorify the Son. He isn't able alone to control their destiny, but also the gift of eternal life. So he's not just controlling the destiny of those who are following him, but he's also able to give to them eternal life. He's in control of the temporary events that were happening in this time, but he's also in control of the events that will happen in eternity. That hasn't changed. He's in control of what's happening now and what will happen in eternity. He's not limited. These things happen And he graciously bestows upon us whatever circumstances that he may be glorified just as he speaks about. It's for his good pleasure. The eternal life then described in verse 3 that he speaks of, it's the knowledge of the only one true God. A knowledge that must be revealed by the Son. Hebrews chapter 1 tells us that. God who at sundry times and in divers manners spake unto the fathers in times past 
by the prophets has in these last days spoken unto us through His Son, Jesus Christ. So just as we see it in Hebrews chapter 1, it's, it's present here. He must speak through His Son. He's a messenger, sin of God. He's a propitiation for our sins, the only propitiation. The Lamb, symbolized by the ram given in the bush to Abraham because his sacrifice of his own son would have been insufficient. It's a foreshadow. Then as we come to verse 4, his prayer continues, and as he speaks to his obedience while upon the earth, he declares the truth that for Christ, earth was a place foreign. Not that he didn't know about it. Not that he didn't create it, because he most certainly did, but it wasn't his home. He speaks of earth as if, as if it was a foreign place in one sense. And it's a distinguished place, not his true residency. That's what we gather from the prayer. Notice that. He said, you have sent, uh, excuse me, I glorified you on the earth, having accomplished the work which you have given me to do. He's talking about, I've glorified you on earth. That means there must be a distinguishment of, of more than one place where he's been. Because he has to speak to God, where have I glorified you? He said, I've glorified you on earth. So we know, we get a glimpse there that earth is not his home. He has a heavenly home because he is God incarnate. This is his true residency. And then certainly we understand from this that he's come from heaven and we know that he'll certainly return. Christ will return. It's a great biblical truth that we understand. It's revealed to us. It's revealed to the saints of God. The resurrection. Paul speaks so many times about it. Those who are crucified with Christ. Those who are now alive in Christ. For those, Jesus will have already accomplished a great work on the cross. Then he speaks of obedience. He speaks of obedience amidst suffering. Amidst pain. Against persecution. How he's remained obedient. This is the life that we are also called to live. Against pain, persecution. People will hate us. We're called to still live obediently. There's no excuse for disobedience. There's no excuse. If, if anyone had a, an excuse to be disobedient, it would be the one to whom the greatest suffering has occurred. And it was Christ. But he was completely obedient. Obedient unto death, the word tells us. So, we should be a people of obedience. One of obedience and dedication. Just like Christ is dedicated to the work and will of God, we also should be dedicated. We also should be obedient. And we must understand that anything that we do, even the suffering, is for the glory of God. Christ recognizes this as he's praying to the Heavenly Father. So we have to ask ourselves. We've been given tasks. We've been given duties. We've been given responsibilities as leaders in our home, as mothers, grandmothers, grandparents, leaders in the church, deacons, elders, whatever. We've been given these tasks and we're instructed by God to do what? To be obedient. To fulfill those things. Not for our own sakes, but for the sake of God the Father. And for us... For Christ himself. Are we doing that? Are we modeling what Christ has modeled in this prayer? Can we say the things that Christ has said to God? We've been obedient. 
We've been faithful. We've glorified you. Can we say that? We have to ask ourselves. Because we should. We most certainly need to be able to say that, but we can't. Not to the extent that Christ has. Christ here is a model for us. A model of how we should behave. A model of how we should face conflict and adversity in our ministry. The opportunities, the place, places where we have been placed. He's, he was put on earth to suffer. You may be put where you're at to suffer. But it's for the glory of God. Christ is very clear of that. Quickly then we move to verse 5. His mind present beyond the events of the cross. Notice how he, how he states it. He says, Now, Father, glorify me together with yourself with the glory which I once had with you before the world was. He's saying, Glorify me now, speaking as if he's already done which was necessary, dying on the cross. We know that at this time he hasn't, but he's speaking because he knows, because he's been one who's obedient, perfectly obedient, that he's going. The work is all but finished. So close. He's going. There's no chance that Christ will stray because He's perfectly obedient, because He is God, performing the will of God the Father, that He will go to the cross. And His mind is fixed upon those things. Jesus eagerly awaited to be restored to His former union with God the Father here in this verse. John 1 says that the Word was with God. That's how we know that He's being restored to something that He previously had. It says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God. Jesus Christ, that living Word, was present with God. Now He's praying to Him, May I be restored to this former glory. It says that the Word became flesh, speaking again of Jesus Christ. We may safely now conclude that heaven was his former home. Heaven was his former inhabitants. This is the place from whence Christ came. Notice I didn't say it was his origin. Because if I said that, I would be saying that he's a created being. He isn't a created being. He's an eternal God. Heaven is his home. He's not a creation so he didn't originate in heaven. But he's the creator. Existing eternally with God. Now after praying for himself, Jesus begins to pray for the disciples. We see this next in line. He's dealing with that which is coming first. For one sense, if Christ doesn't pray for himself, then there's no need to pray for the disciples. Because if he can't accomplish what has been set before him, might as well not pray for anyone else. There's no other hope. Christ prays to the Father. Then he prays for the disciples. Jesus in his ministry accounted for in verse 6 proclaims that he has made the name of God manifest. The entirety of his ministry, the entirety of his purpose, not was to do his own will, but to do the will of the Father who sent him to make his name known. And he says in verse 6 that he does that. Now this verse is, is crucial unto understanding soteriology, unto understanding salvation truth. I have manifested your name to the men who you gave me out of the world. They were yours and you gave them to me and you have kept your word. It's crucial that we understand salvation from the perspective of Christ in John chapter 17. We know that Jesus 
proclaimed the one true God to everyone before Him, all, even the unsaved, have now heard the declaration of who God is. They've heard that Jesus Himself has made claims to be the Son of God. So no one before Him has not heard this message. Everyone to hear Jesus, they've heard this message. They've heard about God. He's made a declaration of who God is. But Jesus says, I have manifested your name to the men who you gave me out of the world. Many things are explained here. One, all are without excuse. God has been preached. It's no longer the veiled God that we talked about in Sunday school uh, available through the law given to Moses. But here we're talking about the God preached by Jesus Christ himself, the true father, the one who he rebuked the Jews for not believing him, but claiming to follow. He said, you, you don't follow him. You're not descendants of Abraham. You don't know God. All are without excuse. Likewise, post-ascension, we have this verse from Romans chapter 1, verse 20. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and his divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made, so they are without excuse. Jesus has said it here in John chapter 17. I've proclaimed you. Men are without excuse. In their presence is God. And then we see, uh, considering those things, the, the many things explained from this particular verse, there's the second point. It's that certain men, a particular group, to them has the name of the Holy God been made manifest. So for some, it's been, for all it's been declared, but for some it's been made manifest. For some it's been proven. The word manifest means to become apparent. Evidentially proven, shown, or demonstrated without question. So Christ has said this. He said, I've presented God. I've presented who you are, Father, to the world. And to those whom you've given me, it's been proven. So not only is there a statement made, but there's proof of that statement. This is to say that although God was verbally declared to all just a chosen few, his existence and power was proven. These men being those who are given to Christ by the Father. And the newfound fruit of their being God's people is that they have kept the word. Jesus says that because they are yours, they've kept the word. Not that they've kept the word and become yours, but because they have become yours, now they're keeping the word. This is speaking about salvation. These are the truths of salvation that we can't earn or merit salvation. That the power to be saved doesn't lie within the, the realm of mankind and his power or his will, but it relies upon God through the power of Christ and his gospel. This is the fruit. This is to be understood as keeping both in thought and in deed. Not just hearing the word, but keeping the word, doing the word. Not being hearers only, but doers of the word. These were not men good of their own volition. The ones who have been made manifest, the gospel. It's not what it's talking about. It's not talking about good men all of a sudden are able to understand. It's that wicked men are given a revelation of Jesus Christ and God the Father. Not anything wrought in them. 
But there, it says there that they're men out of the world. Men not choosing to leave the world, but men chosen to leave the world. Against their will, being delivered from the world in a sense. From sin, from iniquity, from death and destruction. They're being delivered. And then the third point, Jesus says that they were yours, but you gave them to me. This doesn't speak of the entire world, but of those who are elect. It's a greater summation of people. It's that all creation has heard the word of God, but some have been elect and chosen of God to understand that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. There's something that they have to deal with there. It causes them to reflect upon sin. To reflect upon righteousness. Natural man doesn't have an issue with sin. Natural man loves sin. And so as we look at this particular verse, it it begins to unfold and reveal to us the intricacies in one sense of salvation. But then in another sense, it's very simple. You can do nothing. You're not able. Without a doubt, all mankind are unable to come to Christ. They're unable to know God. But, in the very same token, they're God's to deal with as He pleases. So in this case, even a decision could not overturn God's ultimate plan for either your spiritual procurement or your hell-bound destruction. That's the idea. That's something that we take away from the gospel of Christ. We, we really strip God of His glory when we describe salvation as something that we do. Something that we could obtain. Something that we could keep. And in the same sense, if we say that it's something that we can lose, we've stripped God of His glory. We're denying Him the reverence of His name, the power, the jurisdiction that He has over mankind. Then verse 7 says, Now they have come to know that everything you have given me is from you. Every good and perfect thing they recognize is now from the Lord. Natural man doesn't understand that. Natural man thinks, oh, because I I work hard or because I know this or did that, then I have something. But he's very clear here that these elect of God, these chosen, the ones given to Christ, They have what they have because they recognize it's from God. They don't take credit. They're not boasting in these things. James 1, 17 through 21 says, Every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. Of His own will He brought us forth by the Word, that we should be a kind of firstfruits of His creatures. Of His own will He brought us forth. By the word of truth. This is why prayer is so important because it's a time for us to glorify God for all that he's done and all that he continues to do. And Jesus was doing just this very thing as he prays. And then verse 8, believing his deity. Though Jesus, through Jesus now men had come and still come to the Father by this one way, this only way, by the Son of God that they may have done so as a fruit of grace. They come to the Father not because they want to, not because they can, not because it's a choice, but because of the fruit of grace and repentance and faith. A man is able to come. Jesus speaks to these things. 
He's received the word of God. That same word is proclaimed by Jesus. It's now proclaimed by us. Understanding that these are the words of regeneration. They're what we're charged with. What we're charged to share. It's occurred prior to our responding to the gospel. Regeneration. Those words have become effectual. We're, we, we don't understand the word and then be made regenerate we're made regenerate and then we understand the word it's totally a work of god and in verse 9 he asked for their sakes for them he says verse 9 i ask on their behalf i do not ask on behalf of the world but those whom you have given me for they are yours he asked for them why because there's a great spiritual truth revealed in this question Jesus Christ is the only mediator between God and man. It's always been this way. Any prophet before time was just a foreshadow of Christ, a type of Christ. And as Christ prays, he's revealing the truth that he is the only mediator. He must pray. We can't do it on our own. He doesn't stop there. He states that he doesn't ask for the entire world, but only for the sake of those belonging to him, only those who have been given him by the Father. And then we get to verse 10. The two share in all things that belong to God. That's what he says. It's mine is yours. Yours is mine. Even so that these men will glorify God by glorifying Christ. That's how much the two are connected because Jesus Christ is God. When they glorify one, they glorify the other. Truly. When they worship one, they worship the other. And then we get to verse 11 because I think verse 11 uh, speaks volumes about certain doctrines in the church about salvation. Verse 11 says, I'm no longer in the world and yet they themselves are in the world and I come to you, Holy Father. Keep them in your name, the name which you have given me that they may be one even as we are. He's praying that the... God the Father would keep these men and women, certainly. But he's praying that they would keep them. Now, there's a lot of interesting views on, on salvation concerning the security of one chosen by God. So sure of the death to come for redemption, Jesus begins to speak as if he has ascended. He's, he's speaking as if he has ascended. He's so sure that he's gone to the cross that he speaks, keep them, Father. His death is certain because he's never deviated from the will of God. And the substitutionary death was definite. It would surely occur. In its immediate context, Jesus is praying here for the, the disciples of the time, but he also gives us a glimpse later as he, as he prays for those to come. Those who would hear that same word, surely this is the prayer of Christ for you and I. The disciples of today were no different. We need Christ. We certainly need to be reminded of how important prayer is in our daily lives, moment to moment. God speaks to us through Jesus Christ. Hebrews 1.1 says that He speaks to us. God's ordination of events leading to salvation that we must have Christ revealed that's how he's ordained things to happen that's the sequence of events we must hear the word of God we must come to know Christ if we will have salvation 
Just as Jesus was the key to the disciples knowing and following God, we must listen and know intimately the Christ of the Bible. We can't have the Father without the Christ. If you deny one or know not either one of them, then both are far removed from your life. As the verse continues, we realize that Jesus prays because during his entire ministry, he's physically present for his followers. He's praying because there's that change that I was telling you about. The change that they had once had Jesus in their midst, able to perform whatever they needed to perform, any miracles, any healings, any provisions. He was there, but he's soon to be gone. He was there to preach, to guide, to heal, to listen. His instruction would soon only exist in the form of his word, in the presence of his Holy Spirit, the truth of his word. This is how it is for us today as New Testament saints. I think this is the most monumental verse here in John chapter 17, verse 11, proclaiming the saving power of God and the steadfast security that we have in Christ. We have salvation, those who are elect of Christ, and it's sure it's not something that we'll lose. And I want to explain to you how it's so important that we have this biblical uh, view of salvation and eternal security, if you wish to call it that. How wonderful it is. Christ is here. He's praying that God will keep these people. And many people will argue that such a great obtainable salvation can be won. People say that. They say, hey, you know, we can be saved. You just got to call upon the name of the Lord. And they take it extremely out of context and make it a verbal action. And that's it. We can call upon the name of the Lord. And then we can just say we believe in Jesus and we'll be saved. But I think this particular text tells us something a little bit different. The problem is that if we could do nothing to inherit eternal life, like we know is true, then we could do nothing to keep it. So we have an issue. On one hand, some people are proclaiming and professing that you make a choice to follow Christ, you're saved, but then you got to worry. Because if you can choose to have him, you can choose to lose him. But if we have a proper understanding, we understand that we can't choose, that we're drawn against our will, and that it's up to God to keep us. It's up to Christ to keep us in his graces and his mercy. That which he's promised to do, it doesn't really rely upon man. There will be fruits, just as we've seen in the, in the previous verses, that spring forth. They understand your word. They keep your word. They know me. That's the fruit of this salvation, this security that we have. But if we could do nothing to inherit eternal life, then certainly we could do nothing to lose it. And rest assured, likewise, the opposite is true. If we could lose salvation, we would. The power of perseverance doesn't lie within the ability of human flesh but it relies upon the ability of Christ to conform us. We are the temple of God. The indwelling Holy Spirit is within us. Our bodies and our spirits are moved by the Spirit of the living God. So when we understand this, we, we take a proper view of what's going on here in John 
chapter 17, there's a parable. It says uh, there's a parable of a thief. illustrates a mystery hidden for us. If you'll turn your Bibles to Mark chapter 3, I think this is very interesting. You may have never heard these two passages quite connected like this. Chapter 3 of Mark, verse 20. I'm going to read through verse 27. It says, And he came home, and the crowd gathered again to such an extent that they could not even eat a meal when his own people heard of this they went out to take custody of him for they were saying he has lost his senses the scribes who came down from Jerusalem were saying he is possessed by Beelzebub and he cast out demons by the ruler of the demons and he called them to himself and began speaking to them parables how can Satan cast out Satan if a kingdom is divided against itself that kingdom cannot stand. If a house is divided against itself, that house will not be able to stand. If Satan has risen up against himself and is divided, he cannot stand, but he is finished. But no one can enter the strong man's house and plunder his property unless he first binds the strong man and then he will plunder his house. Jesus prays to God in John chapter 7, verse 11. Holy Father, keep them. So I pose this question to you. Are you the master of your house? The scriptures teach that your flesh is weak and your mind is weak. Therefore, the thought should not be so far removed from you to think that you, being the strong man of your own house, you could be overtaken. You could be bound. You can be tied up. You can be cast down. You can be killed. You can be harmed. But on the other hand, if you're a servant, a slave to righteousness, a slave to Christ, then you're not the master. You're not the strong man of your house, are you? Christ is the strong man. Christ is the one, if someone will overtake, he must be bound. So if we consider that, that you're a servant to righteousness and servant to the kingdom of Christ, then you're under his rule. The master of your house is Christ. He's the strong man. Now we may boast in his name. Who will bind that master? Come on. They say you can lose salvation. The parable says to take something, to take a treasure from a man, you must bind the strong man. I have a treasure. It's Jesus Christ. It's eternal life. He's the strong man of my house, of this temple. His spirit dwells in you and I, so who can bind him? Very simple. He can't be tied up. Then by reason you can see that if the Holy Spirit of God has entered on behalf of Christ, if you've truly been made regenerate, the Messiah is in your heart. He's in your heart of flesh. He can't be run out. He can't be bound. He won't abandon his post. This means salvation is sure. Can't be lost. The treasures that we have in Christ can't be plundered by the world unless they overtake the strong man, Jesus Christ. Last of all, I want to consider what this passage truly is. It's a prayer of our Lord Jesus Christ. He's praying, Lord, Father, keep them, the saints. 
Those who belong to me, keep them. So if we recognize that that is a prayer, then we go to 1 John chapter 5 and it says, And this is the confidence that we have toward Him that if we ask anything according to His will, He hears us. And if we know that He hears us in whatever we ask, we know that the request, that we have the request that we have asked of Him. It's saying, if we pray according to the will of God, that those prayers will certainly be met. So we ask ourselves, what is Christ doing here? He's praying. Jesus prayed. Is His will not the will of God? So if Jesus is praying the will of God, didn't He also say He came not to do His own will, but the will of the Father who sent Him? So then even His prayer is the will of God, that Jesus would pray this for those who belong to Him. So we can conclude from that that certainly the prayers of Christ here are the will of God. 1 John chapter 5 tells us if we pray according to the will of God that those things will be met. What does that tell us about salvation? If Jesus prays, Father keep them, they must be kept. If they're not, we have to say that Jesus doesn't pray according to the will of God. We have to separate Christ from His deity. We have to say that He's not God. So to have a view of salvation that says a man can grasp it or a man can lose it means to say that Jesus wasn't God. That Jesus didn't pray according to the will of God. Certainly we know that that's not true. It's been granted to us because Jesus is praying the will of God. There's no separation. You can't separate the Father from the Son in that respect. Also, you would have to say that Jesus prayed without belief. Matthew chapter 21, we have to believe. The eternity of those belonging to Christ is secure. Because Christ prayed, one, according to the will of the Father, but one, He prayed with absolute trust, absolute belief that God was faithful to respond in the manner in which He said He would. So by the very attributes of Christ being God Himself, we know that believers are forever His. Nothing that we have to worry about. See, these things distract us from the cross. They distract us from the gospel. They distract us from serving others. Christ's prayer here is a prayer of a servant. He came to serve. He came to do that which we could not do. And if we get so fixed upon losing salvation, then we're worried about ourselves and we're not worried about someone else. The fact of the matter is if we're truly saved, we're saved forever. It's a promise. It's an eternal guarantee. God doesn't give gifts that can't be used. And when we see the the following passages after that, he says, while I was with them, I was keeping them in your name which you have given me and I guarded them, not one of them perished, but the son of perdition, so that the scripture would be fulfilled. The truth is that if Christ came to earth to keep men, then certainly in the form of man, then certainly as he's ascended into heaven, he can continue to keep men and women. I think this particular passage tells us a lot about salvation. It causes us to be able, like Paul this morning, to stand and proclaim boldly the message of Jesus Christ because it's not something that can be taken away. 
It's not something that we can be stripped of because guess what? That inheritance that we have isn't ours. It's His. It can't be taken. And so I just encourage you to consider that because people come, will come up to you and they'll talk about and they'll question salvation and, and, and eternal security, excuse me, when they, rather, when they should rather question salvation. It's not can you be kept? Have you lost your salvation? The question is, did you ever really have it? Is the gospel of Jesus Christ been effectual to your lives? Do you trust? Do you place all of your faith on the Lord Jesus Christ? Do you know that He's the Son of God? Do you know that He's the Son of Man? Do you know that His promises stand when no others stand? Do you know that He's the only sacrifice? The text bears out that it's true. That He is the Son of God. That He is God incarnate. And that He's faithful when all else fails. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, as we come to You once again, we thank You for the time to study Your Word. God, we thank you that the burden of keeping salvation doesn't rest upon our shoulders. God, it's a yoke that we could not bear. It's a burden that would be too heavy for man. God, we we are thankful this morning that Jesus Christ is the strong man of our house. Lord, he can't be bound And God, we just pray that because of the power of your son, Jesus Christ, to raise himself from the dead, that sin wouldn't bind us, that our iniquities would no longer keep us separated. And God, we pray that the gospel go forth from this church and from each member of this congregation. In such a powerful way that men will understand that Jesus Christ is the only way. That he is the way, the truth, and the life. God, we just pray that souls would hear this message and rest on his sufficiency. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.